Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello and welcome back. This is the final episode for season one of the Say the Word podcast. And I just want to say thank you for being here and for being a part of this. When I decided to launch a few months ago, I wasn't sure how this podcast would be received. I mean, it doesn't fit very neatly into any podcast genre that I've ever heard of. But your feedback has been so meaningful and motivating and having so many of you reach out with quotes to share and suggestions for future episodes has just made this more fun than I can possibly convey. Now season two will begin on Saturday, July 3rd, so make sure you're subscribed so you won't miss it. Now I want to jump right into today's selection. We are talking about a passage from Renee Watson's young adult novel, Love is a Revolution. You guys, I love this novel for so many reasons. First, the 17-year-old protagonist is a plus-sized black girl who actively cultivates finding herself beautiful. She is happy in her own skin and in her own body, and that is a message that I cannot get too much of. There are strong friendships portrayed between teenage girls rather than the popular narrative of cattiness and competition, even while exploring how those relationships can shift and change and go through periods of feeling complicated. The love story in this novel is so multifaceted. There is romantic love, sure, but also the love between friends, the love between family, the love of planet and culture and values, and ultimately love of self. Watson weaves these threads together in a deeply relatable story that is at different times funny and gut-wrenching and inspiring. Seriously, I sat down with this 300-page book and ripped through it in just a few short hours. So let's dive into this passage. Here we go from Renee Watson's novel, Love is a Revolution. I don't know what's gotten into the two of you, but you both have got to figure it out. We don't do this. We. I am still a part of Grandma's we. She's mad at me, but not so much that she stopped loving me, wanting me. You both thinking you know everything, thinking you're right. Well, you're both wrong. Grandma turns to Imani and says, life can't be about trying to prove a point or make someone feel less than you. You walking around having love for the planet, love for animals, love for every outcast, downtrodden person, but you ain't got no love for your cousin, for your mama, me. Since when you so high and mighty that you don't come to family gatherings? Since when? You think you're smart and brave and passionate? Who you think taught you to be that way? Tell her, Grandma, tell her. And Nala Robertson, you have got to start learning how to love yourself. For you, it will always be easier to love other people, to put them first and cater to them, to adapt to their needs. You wanna really be something in this world? Learn how to walk into a room, being yourself, and staying true to who you are. Yes, there's room for growth always, but if the change isn't for you, it won't last. 
Okay, so Nala's first thoughts here where she says, I'm still a part of Grandma's we. She's mad at me, but not so much that she stopped loving me, wanting me. This breaks my heart and feels so very relatable. I mean, how often do we do this to ourselves? How many times over the course of our lives have we made a mistake or the wrong choice and wondered if we just cost ourselves the love of someone dear to us? Wondered if this was what might render us unlovable. Back in episode six, we talked about the difference between guilt and shame, and I referenced Brene Brown's extensive work in this area. I won't rehash all of that now, but I do think it applies here. Nala is sitting right on that edge in the sentence, isn't she? She's made a bad decision, a serious mistake that hurt and upset a lot of people, people she cared about. And she wasn't sure what that meant for her life and her relationships, whether it was enough to make her no longer lovable. Going back to Brene Brown's definitions in that TED Talk, Guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. And it feels like Nala isn't sure which is true until her grandma uses the word we. And Nala realizes that she's still included, that she's still a part of her grandma's we. I'm so tempted to go back down the rabbit hole of guilt and shame again here. But since that did get a lot of attention back in episode six, I will just keep this to two primary thoughts here. One, when we're in Nala's position of having hurt people we love through our poor choices, we have to make the decision to lean into guilt and the learning experience that that guilt offers us, use it to teach us more about who we want to be in this world and veer away from shame and its destructive consequences. It's not always easy and we're not guaranteed forgiveness, but allowing our mistakes to teach us is often one of the best possible ways to right our wrongs. Seriously, go check out episode six for more of this discussion because it is an important one. Now two, when we're in grandma's position of having been hurt by someone we love and they've offered us a sincere and earnest apology, we have our own choices to make, right? Grandma could have given Nala the silent treatment or excluded her as punishment for her poor choice, but she didn't. She called her out, she held her accountable, but she didn't withdraw the love and belonging that were so crucial to Nala. The choice impacted how Nala coped with her mistake, and it allowed her to veer into the learning opportunity of guilt instead of falling into a shame spiral. Now this is powerful, especially when we consider Nala's age. She's 17 years old. She is learning about who she wants to be and what kind of adult she aspires to become. She's learning about where her value comes from and whose opinions to value. Her grandma means the world to her. When she says, she's mad at me, but not so much that she stopped loving me, wanting me, it is an important moment for Nala. We never know when someone might be right on that edge, when they might be teetering between constructive guilt or destructive shame, and what influence our response might have. Now, we talked some about forgiveness in episode eight, and I know that forgiveness can be tricky business. I don't pretend to have all of the answers there, but 
again, it's always worth at least beginning with our curiosity, beginning with the questions that we talked about in that episode and adding this to that discussion. What if our compassion is the difference between guilt and shame? What if choosing not to withhold love or belonging was the key to learning from mistakes instead of repeating them? What if we showed that compassion to ourselves when we made mistakes as well as when it was another who offended? How can grace be offered to ourselves and to others? Now, Grandma turns to Amani next. Nala refers to Amani throughout the book as her cousin-sister friend, one long hyphenated word that encapsulates their relationship. Amani is six months older than Nala and is a very motivated activist. And here, Grandma calls her out a little too. She says to Amani, You have love for the planet, love for animals, love for every outcast, downtrodden person, but no love for your cousin, for your mama, for me. I love this so much. There's an argument to be made, right? That it is much easier to love in the abstract, to love humanity or the planet or the animals than it is to love the actual flawed and fallible humans right in front of us. Not only is it less complicated much of the time, but there's far more social currency in it. We are applauded for our efforts, for the protests and the recycling campaigns or the rescue operations. And we can wear those efforts like badges of belonging among like-minded folks. We can sit back into our own righteousness and it can serve as an amazing cover for our own vulnerabilities or what we think of as our own imperfections, as well as a sort of get out of jail free card for not attending to what or who is right in front of us. Part of knowing someone well, whether it's family or friends, is that we also get a front row seat to what we may consider their flaws. Some of our most problematic coping mechanisms pop up with the people we're closest to, right? And part of sharing our lives with people, really sharing our day-to-day, is that inevitably our own rough edges rub up against their rough edges and eventually someone gets hurt. Eventually, everyone gets hurt, really, right? Hurting one another is sort of part and parcel of every relationship that matters to us. And it really opens us up to each other's vulnerabilities and old stories and baggage. I mean, that idea is really, it's a rabbit warren that I should probably save for its very own episode. But I want to come back to Grandma's comment to Amani here. Now, I'm reminded again of something that the writer and activist Glennon Doyle wrote in her book, Untamed. I know I've mentioned her in other episodes, but in the book she says, I love humanity, but actual human beings are tricky for me. I love people, but not in person. Now, she was being tongue-in-cheek about being an introvert there, but I just can't help but think she and Nala's grandma might nod knowingly at one another if they were in the same room here. Amani and her friends had, to some extent, weaponized their activism. She had used it to make Nala feel small or ignorant or, as Grandma pointed out, less than. Now, this isn't an either-or scenario. This is a perfect example of a both-and scenario. Activism is 
absolutely crucial in making the world a safer, kinder, more just place that will continue to, you know, you know, exist for generations to come. And also, that work does not excuse us from paying equal attention to caring for what is right in front of us, to our own families and friends and communities. If this is a struggle, once again, leading into curiosity can be a path into this closer work, asking ourselves some questions and getting genuinely interested in the answers. How can we meet our people where they are? How can we genuinely try to understand where they're coming from? Where might we find common ground to begin from? What might they be afraid of or coping with? What obstacles are they facing? I am not suggesting that we compromise our values or that we allow unhealthy boundaries. But I just, I don't know a single person who stays very open in the face of feeling judged or being talked at by someone they perceive as sanctimonious. It's just not very effective. Nor does that actually serve our relationships if we want to preserve those. And if we find ourselves hiding behind our activism to avoid getting close or being vulnerable ourselves, if it's what we build our entire identity on, as Imani has here, or we rely on it to create a sense of belonging for ourselves, well, that's worth digging into as well. What questions might we ask from that perspective? The one that comes to mind for me first is, where is it that I believe that my value comes from? What am I getting out of this that might not be about the work itself? Now, again, to be clear, this is a both-and idea. For activism to be at its most effective, there needs to be sustainability and authenticity and compassion. These things require that we come to it from a place of genuine caring, that we don't use it as a band-aid for our other issues, that we don't lose sight of the trees while we're fighting for the forest. Grandma is proud of Imani. She thinks she's smart and brave and passionate. And also... She thinks she needs to bring those traits to her family relationships as well. Now, in this last section, Grandma turns to Nala and she says, you have got to start learning how to love yourself. It will always be easier to love other people, to put them first and cater to them, to adapt to their needs. You wanna really be something in this world? Learn how to walk into a room, being yourself and staying true to who you are. Yes, there's room for growth, always. But if the change isn't for you, it won't last. I have more to say about this than I have time for today, but I want to just zoom in here first on the word easier. It will always be easier to love other people, to put them first, and to adapt to their needs. And it is, right? It is easier to just be what others need or want us to be. Less conflict, less confrontation, less chance of rejection really less work. To figure out who we are, man, that does take a lot of work. I mean, for some people, this can come more naturally. Maybe they were raised in families where they were encouraged to be themselves, or maybe they simply have a really strong inner voice. But for the vast majority of us, this simply isn't the case. Between social conditioning and experiences that influenced us early in our lives, most of us have to do some real digging to figure out what we want or who we are versus what we've been taught we're supposed to want or who we're supposed to be. 
Sometimes that influence is obvious, but sometimes it's subtle. I think sometimes we can assume that this always looks like external pressure to change or to be something, but it can also show up as internal pressure to be more like someone that we genuinely like or admire, a sibling or parent or mentor or friend. A few years ago, a dear friend of mine took the Myers-Briggs personality test. It was the first time in about a decade that she'd taken it, and she got a different personality type this time than she did the first time. And her explanation has stuck with me because it's both hilarious and so very relatable. She said, it turns out that you get really different results when you answer the questions honestly instead of aspirationally. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's really not, is it? I experienced a little taste of this just recently. So I was a competitive swimmer growing up, and frankly, I was good at it. I won a lot. And the other day, my husband and I were talking about a book that we had read, and swimming came up, and he asked me if I'd actually liked swimming. And my knee-jerk answer was, yeah, duh. I spend a lot of hours in the pool, and I was good at it, so yeah, of course I liked it. But before I blurted that out, I stopped for a second and I asked myself if that was actually true. And the answer I finally came to was, I don't know. I don't think so, actually, but I'm honestly just not sure. The thing of it is, I don't know if it's entirely possible for me to untangle all the threads of that part of my life. It was a place that I got a lot of approval from peers and coaches and my parents. And it was also a place where I could see quite directly the results of my hard work. I showed up early to practice. I worked out extra on my own. I was very driven and it paid off. I won. Now that's pretty satisfying stuff, right? And it was where I found my social circle. Most of my friends were also swimmers. But I've actually never been someone who has looked at a body of water and had a craving to swim in it. You know, like my husband has difficulty resisting at least a dip in a mountain lake. And I have a friend who once jumped off of a fishing boat 200 miles from shore into the ocean in large part because she looked at that expanse of water and swimming in it was irresistible. No and no. Not only is going for a swim rarely that appealing to me unless it's really hot out, but ocean swimming is a particular fear of mine. Just thinking about her floating in the deep blue sea totally gives me the willies. But, you know, there was always a tiny bit of dread before jumping into the water at practice. And the thing is, is that that was easily overcome by the role swimmer had become to my identity. And I was a butterfly, which is a beautifully rhythmic stroke. And there have been times over recent decades that I have craved that, the feel of smoothly gliding through the water with strength and rhythm. It felt good in my body. I felt good in my body in those years. So what should seem like a straightforward question, did I like swimming, feels nearly impossible for me to accurately answer for myself. It takes some digging, some pausing, and asking ourselves, well, do I really like such and such to figure out who we are? I mean, do you guys remember that movie Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts? Do you remember the part where she realizes she doesn't actually know how she likes her eggs, right? 
She's just ordered them the way that every boyfriend or fiance she's ever had had ordered them. But she didn't actually know how she liked them best. So there's that scene where she goes to the diner and she orders eggs cooked in every conceivable way and she just tries each one in order to figure out how she likes them. I mean, this is what figuring out who we are can sometimes look like, right? Trying some things out and asking, hmm, how do I feel about this? And when we ask it, we have to listen and give some real attention to the actual answer. I mean, again, that can seem really straightforward, but sometimes it isn't. It can really be far easier to slide into the expectations of others, to mold our lives, to adapt to what others want from us, or at least what we perceive as what they want for us. It can take real work, and confronting some truths about ourselves, or those we love even, that are deeply uncomfortable as we do that work. But ultimately, as we talked about way back in episode three, eventually living in a way that isn't true for us becomes untenable. We crave the softer voice of our own lives. We can only bend and adapt to what others might expect from us for so long before something gives. There is an inherent unsustainability to living and acting ways that aren't in line with who we are really. And that dissonance comes with its own discomfort, and eventually, we simply can't maintain it. We may have to experiment some, try on some different versions of ourselves as we figure out what fits. This can be especially true if our lives have included experience such as abuse or trauma or strong cultural conditioning that runs counter to our deepest truths. Anything that has required us to dim our light for the comfort of another to hide our love or our gifts or our dreams in order to fit in can take a toll on our ability to hear our own voices and to know how to heed them. Learning or relearning how to hear your own softer voice, it takes courage and curiosity and sometimes trying out some things that might not end up being quite right can help us get closer. That's okay. Keep exploring and keep asking, how does this feel? I mean, sometimes starting with what might seem totally superficial can actually be a way in. Do I actually like this book that everyone's raving about or that music or that movie? What is my opinion? And never forget, we are allowed to change what we think. We are allowed to learn things both external and internal that shift how we see the world and ourselves. Staying open to that is part of what growth looks like. Walking into a room as ourselves and staying true to who we are does not mean that we have to craft an unchanging identity. It means that we learn to hear ourselves amidst the noise of our lives, that we cultivate that ability to hear what feels genuine and true for us regardless of what is trending around us. It means learning to trust ourselves, to ultimately trust when something feels really right or really wrong somewhere within us, no matter what others' opinions might be. We can take in and weigh and learn from our mentors and our friends and our teachers, but staying true to ourselves means that ultimately we don't simply accept those ideas or opinions blindly, but trust ourselves to evaluate them as well. Sometimes we will be wrong. 
Sometimes we'll make mistakes and we'll need to apologize. Sometimes we'll change our minds. Owning that is part of being true to ourselves. Learning who we are takes work. It takes openness and exploration and curiosity and courage. But as Nala's grandma says, we must learn to love ourselves. It's from that place that we can do the most good as activists. It's how we have the tenacity to love our people and our planet well without weaponizing that caring. It's how we can keep the ability to stay in the learning of guilt when we make a mistake instead of spiraling into the destructiveness of shame. Learning who we are and how to live in deep love for ourselves is lifelong work. We will continue to learn and grow within it every single day until our last day. And there is joy to be had in it. If we can stay curious about ourselves, our lives, our choices, and the world, we can do this work with a certain measure of delight, even when it's hard. Again, this passage is from Renee Watson's young adult novel, Love is a Revolution. And as always, the link to the book is in the show notes at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. Now, before we wrap up this season and season one, I have to share something I stumbled on just this week that feels spot on to close out the season. In an opinion piece he wrote for the New York Times, writer Salman Rushdie dove into the ways that stories shaped his life. And of course, I will link to it in the show notes. And you guys know I love this idea, right? So I'm going to just give you a bunch of quotes um, from it that I just loved. So he says in one section, This is the beauty of the wonder tale and its descendant fiction, that one can simultaneously know that the story is a work of imagination, which is to say untrue, and believe it to contain profound truth. The boundary between the magical and the real at such moments ceases to exist. And then later he says, The stories that made me fall in love with literature in the first place were tales full of beautiful impossibility, which were not true, but by being not true, told the truth, often more beautifully and memorably than stories that relied on being true. Those stories didn't have to happen once upon a time either. They could happen right now, yesterday, today, or the day after tomorrow. That a story can, through its very fiction, convey a profound truth is something I believe wholeheartedly, and I have shared that opinion here. Rushdie captures the power of a story to teach us and shape us so powerfully in this piece, and I just want to continue to share a few more bits of what he says. Quote, The fantastic is neither innocent nor escapist. The Wonderland is not a place of refuge, not even necessarily an attractive or likable place. It can be, in fact, it usually is, a place of slaughter, exploitation, cruelty, and fear. Captain Hook wants to kill Peter Pan. The Witch in the Black Forest wants to cook Hansel and Gretel. The wolf actually eats Red Riding Hood's grandmother. Albus Dumbledore is murdered, and the Lord of the Rings plans the enslavement of the whole of Middle-earth. We know when we hear these tales that even though they are unreal because carpets do not fly and witches and gingerbread houses do not exist, they're also real because they're about real things. Love, hatred, fear, power, bravery, cowardice, death. And then he says, 
Their power endures, and it does so, I believe, because for all their cargo of monsters and magic, these stories are entirely truthful about human nature, even when in the form of anthropomorphic animals. All human life is here, brave and cowardly, honorable and dishonorable, straight-talking and conniving. And the stories ask the greatest and most enduring question of literature. How do ordinary people respond to the arrival in their lives of the extraordinary? And they answer, sometimes we don't do so well, but at other times we find resources within ourselves that we did not know that we possessed. And so we rise to the challenge. We overcome the monster. Beowulf kills Grendel and Grendel's more fearsome mother as well. Red Riding Hood kills the wolf or beauty finds the love within the beast and then he is beastly no more. And that is ordinary magic, human magic, the true wonder of the wonder tale. As we close season one and have a few weeks before season two commences, I encourage you to consider some of what we've talked about over these last 12 weeks, about the beauty of your heart house and the soft voice of your life, of how change can sometimes be a messy, bloody transformation, but that it is also inevitable and how we often emerge from the other side of it as something more extraordinary than we began and how it can help us find the place from which we can speak our deepest beliefs. That balancing structure with freedom can allow us to grow and that solitude can allow us to see the patterns that fuel our strength, that the language we use to come home to ourselves can often be found in the smallest things. That when we look upon ourselves, our lives, and our world with genuine interest and curiosity instead of harshness and judgment, there is so much richness and depth and beauty to be found that within each of us lies this ordinary human magic, and that is indeed extraordinary and profoundly true. Okay, I'll see you July 3rd with the first episode of season two. And in the meantime, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.